0: Scripture reading this morning that I'm asked to read is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. In case you're wondering, yes, these are my wife's purple reading glasses that I'm wearing. <laughs> I know you'll be asking me later. beginning in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those of you who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. Offense, I'm sorry. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you, who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
1: I think they look good on you. I'm just surprised sometimes since high school he learned to read. I I don't know when that... Know When that happened, I should probably tell our visitors that's my brother. <laughs> we don't all treat each other like that. Most of us do, though, don't we? Uh, it's good to have fun. It's good to be together. And uh, it's also good to um, engage in some, some uh, wrestling with God's Word, some wranglings. And uh, this morning, if you're sleepy, you know, pinch yourself and, and wake up because we've got some good things to go over. Uh, It's going to require your fingers to be a little loose. Uh, We are going to uh, open the book. Uh, You can begin to do so now to the book of Isaiah right at the beginning. And uh, we're not going to travel far in our searching in the Scriptures, but we will travel through the book of Isaiah some. And so uh, we're going to have a Bible study this morning as well as, I hope, a sermon. When you're asked in your Bible to turn to a gospel you might think, well, I'll turn to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, right? It's one of the Gospels. We call those the Gospels, the writers of the story of, of Jesus. But who among you would dare to turn to the book of Isaiah? The rest of us might look over and say, well, that poor soul doesn't know what the Gospels are. You know, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Isaiah has rightfully earned a name as the fifth Gospel. And if you uh, don't if you've never heard that or you don't know what I mean, maybe by the end of the sermon today, you'll have a better grasp on why Isaiah the prophet's book is considered a gospel, uh, telling of the good news of God's saving message to mankind. Indeed, it's chock full of uh, uh, literacy that the New Testament pulls from to teach us that the King is here when He comes. In fact, the word gospel finds its roots in Isaiah's usage of it when he said in chapter 40, verse 9, O Zion, bring glad tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. And that phrase, glad tidings, is translated gospel. So he's the first one to use that. And uh, we see then in the book of Acts in the New Testament that Philip, the evangelist, When he overtook that chariot with the Ethiopian man on his way back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, Africa. Uh, When he overtook that chariot, he was reading from Isaiah. And Philip began there and preached Jesus to him. I think you're going to see today just how clearly you can preach Jesus from the book of Isaiah. I cannot present in one lesson in fact, it's become broken up into two or three now as I, as I study through and really lay it all out. There will be subsequent lessons from Isaiah that will pick up the portrayal of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Today I'm going to hone in on one thing. I was going to try, try to swallow the whole camel, but there's just no way. So we're going to hone in on one idea, one theme that's presented in, uh, in the book of Isaiah. Now, like so many prophecies, let's remember as we go through this, without me having to stop and re-explain at each point, um, understand this, that there is an immediate fulfillment to these prophecies found in the people of Israel, God's people, uh, during that time who were about to go into exile. Their sin was going to separate them from their God He would give them over to their desires and allow them to chase and pursue all the things that they think are good, and it's going to lead them into captivity. Those whom they thought loved them, these other great nations with whom they they brushed shoulders and and, uh, became rich through and also exchanged worship of their gods, are going to end up devouring them. And leading them away. In fact, they'll lead them away into different countries, and we'll look more into that in upcoming weeks. They're going to disperse them or exile them from the nation that we've, in the beginning of the year, watched them come into and take possession of. They're going to come back. They don't even know they're going into exile yet. And God is continuing to speak through Isaiah when you get back. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine if I stood up today and said, Americans, when the Lord does bring you back from all those country to which you're about to go prisoner, you'd say, what are you talking about? Someone get this guy out of here. I mean, that would be the, 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 the nerve that would be struck. And yet Isaiah is continually hammering this. So, it's very important that it go into writing for subsequent generations to be able to read the prophet's words and say, this is truly that which the prophet Isaiah has said to us. Truly, now we ought to look for these things that God is telling us will come in the future and make ourselves ready for His salvation. And so we see all this played out in the gospel. So there's an immediate fulfillment and then there's this double fulfillment. There's this double meaning to a king, not only Yahweh of the Old Testament Israel, but to the king that he will announce in Isaiah is coming and will be that king of strength and of justice and of peace and safety in their future. And I think he'll be readily identifiable to you. So this week, what we're going to do Well, last week we looked at we looked at Yahweh calling his people to reason, to prevent them in a last effort to uh, to uh, go into this captivity and he'd turn them over to this punishment and even his hand would be against them. He's trying to prevent this, but now we'll see it roll over into uh, this discussion um, of a king, and this is this is the uh, theme that I want to follow this morning of a king who holds a great feast now we don't get to that until chapter 25 and John did a remarkable study John Collier uh, over two quarters this year in the book of Isaiah and he delved deep into the meaning of each passage and then he'd step away occasionally and say this is looking ahead looking ahead well we'll do that as well I wasn't in his second quarter class so, I'm not sure if some of this will be reiterated from what John said or not, but we're going to take that view of stepping back and seeing the double meaning of looking into the future. But first, let's look at chapter 2, where this king will reign in Jerusalem. In the first five verses of chapter 2, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Think about Acts chapter 2 there. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. I thought out of Sinai went forth the law. Out of Zion, Mount Zion, the temple mount of Jerusalem, in that day, in the latter days, shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Not in the name of king, that is. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. There is his invitation to know this future king, this future law, this future reign, if you will. So he starts out very, very basically, very generally. And we move into verse 12 where he says, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, it shall be brought low. And so the day of the Lord will bring everything that exalts itself against the name of God under the reign of God himself. And then we see in verse 22, he calls for a severance from those men who would rebel against this God? And if you recall in Second Corinthians chapter six, Paul and his call to the Corinthians, he says, "Separate yourselves. Separate yourselves from the people and come out from among them, that the Lord may call you His people, and you may call Him your God." And so we see this separation being set up, and that's what the church means. Maybe that's a, a, a term that has escaped you over the years. The church, ecclesia, means to be called out. And this is the idea. Separate yourselves from among sinners. Not physically can we do this or we'd have to leave this earth, Paul said. We'd have to leave the earth. We can't really do this, so we're among them. But in spirit, we need to separate ourselves to our God, whether they come with us or not. And so we see this idea of being a subject of this king set up in chapter 2. Now look at chapter 6. We find in chapter 6, in verse 5, the prophets call. <clears throat> Normally, in the first few verses of, of the book of the prophets, uh, their, their calling is introduced. Where they were, what they were doing, perhaps, when the Lord came to them and said, go, go. Isaiah sets up this scene in the first five books called the mini-book. It's a miniature portrayal of the whole book and the whole picture. And then in chapter 6, Isaiah says, here's how I came to be a prophet. His lips were unclean. He, He felt unready to do this great task of preaching the gospel to the people. As you can imagine, it would be, like I said, getting up and telling them of their captivity, and uh, even though their return is very hopeful, you don't want to hear about that, because all you've got in your mind is, nothing's going to happen to us. You don't know what you're talking about. We're not going into captivity. Who sent you? Go home. And he experiences the same uh, rebuttal as Jeremiah did, maybe not as severely, but uh, he, he doesn't feel equipped, and so God touches his lips through an angel and purifies him, forgives his sin, if you will, and readies him, and he makes that great statement then, here am I, send me, which was, which Lauren put on our shirts for the mission team this year. That's where it comes from, Isaiah 6, 8. In chapter 7, we get right on with the program, Ahaz would not accept Isaiah's preaching, he would not accept the offer of a sign from God that God would be with him. And Isaiah said, very well, I'll give you a sign that God is with us. He said in verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I want to remind you that this is Eight centuries, approximately, before the coming of this king. Eight centuries. Now, I have a hat at home that I got from Switzerland two years ago that was brought back to me. And it was fun at the family reunion yesterday, watching my brothers try to figure out what it meant. It's that Swiss cross, their flag symbol, their their country symbol, and it said 1281 on it. And that's the, the year that they were established as a nation. That's almost 800 years ago. Now think about that. In 1200 and something, somebody telling you what's going to happen today. These are the nature of the biblical prophecies. They're not just short-term all the time. They're long-term. And so he says there will be one born to a virgin whom we'll call Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. He will be with us. And then we know that when we turn to the book of Matthew in chapter 1 that we see not only is He introduced as the Son of David, according to the prophecies, but also Emmanuel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And the angelic announcement, was it not we bring you glad tidings of great joy? We bring you the gospel. I present to you, the angel was saying, the gospel. He is in the manger And so he even borrowed Isaiah's term there to announce the birth of Jesus Christ. In chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, says Isaiah, in the prophetic perfect. This tense is called the prophetic perfect. It's when something is spoken in past tense to emphasize that God will do this thing, and I'm going to say it as if it had already happened because it's so certain that it's going to happen. So they speak as if it had happened already. It did in his mind, in God's mind. It's a done thing. So he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, his reign, will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." And he goes on to say, and of his increase, or the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And isn't this true? The nation will increase. His governance will increase as his subjects increased. And we even had the increase of one this past week in his kingdom. It's always increasing. You might think proportionally, this kingdom seems as if it's a minority in the world of men. But God sees a kingdom increasing in number every day all across the world. To God, the church is ever growing as more people come to him. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with justice and judgment. From that time forward, even forever this kingdom shall be. And he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so we see him announced as the son of David, the son of Abraham, first verse of the New Testament, where he is born king of the Jews. And the wise men in chapter 2, verse 2, come and ask Herod dreadfully, Where is this one who is born king of the Jews? You see, those wise men were wise because they had been reading the Gospel of Isaiah, and they were prepared for his coming and his birth. They knew of these writings. And they were tipped off to his coming and recognized it when it came. Many of the Jews didn't recognize it, but men from the east came and said, Where is this king of the Jews that we may worship him? Because, as we'll see, he's also going to be the king of the Gentiles. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. This king will be accompanied by the third person of the Godhead. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, the Jesse, the father of David of the tribe of Judah. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. You see, because he knows what is in men's hearts. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Think of the Beatitudes there. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Think of Ephesians chapter 6. So the king is going to be established in Jerusalem. But now I want you to turn to chapter 25 and follow with me what is the main thrust of this sermon. That the Lord announces that He is going to host a feast for all men. He's going to host a feast for all men on this mountain, this same mountain, upon which He said, all people shall come to it. They'll ask for His law, and His law will go forth. In verse 6, and in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people, all people, that's really important when, when Isaiah is prophesying to the Jews, for all people, a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. That's the idea of that that wine being uh, uh, pressed and colored by the the particles of the skin in it to give it the the appeal and the flavor of that fresh-squeezed juice off the vine. He says, And not only will you have a great feast of the finest food and drink, it'll be a spiritual feast indeed. But not only that, he says, there will be a couple of main events that will be revealed at this feast. You get a treat. Have you all ever been out to a meal with a family or somewhere where someone stood up or interrupted the meal at some point and said, I have an announcement to make. Maybe you've had that privilege. It might be that someone is is going to get married or have a baby. But it gathers your attention, doesn't it? I have an announcement to make. And you say, oh boy, here comes something. The Lord's got an announcement to make. He says, And He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over the nations, over all nations, He will swallow up death forever. Does that phrase ring a bell with you? He'll swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people He'll take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He'll save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation." Well, he's going to destroy something. He's going to uncover a veil that is cast upon all of those in attendance. Anyone from any nation who comes is covered with a veil, a veil of darkness. He'll swallow it up forever. Now, this veil could be referring to a veil of mourning, as when one mourns for the death of a loved one, or as one mourns for their own sin, but it has to do with the idea of sin and death. It even could refer to, as John pointed out in his notes in class, the veil or covering that is put over the head of the condemned as they are issued a sentence of death. Perhaps we haven't seen it with our own eyes, but... In movies and so on, you've, you've seen coverings put over someone's head before a lynching, or you've seen someone covered and taken away and imprisoned. Haman, in the book of Esther, when it finally came to the king's attention, Ahasuerus, that, that Esther, his queen, was a Jew and that this plan was uncovered by Mordecai, that Haman actually was going to exterminate the Jews... And the king found out that his own queen was a Jew. And he said, "Who? this is preposterous. They threw a covering over his head and led him away and hung him on his own gallows. It could refer to that idea as well. Either way, those who are coming to the feast are condemned. They're guilty. There's a darkness over them when they come. And God said, at this feast that I'm inviting you to, I'm going to lift the veil. I'm going to uncover it and I'm going to destroy it and swallow it up in victory. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16-18, through 18, that those who refuse to turn to the king, but rather turn to Moses for salvation, for the Jews' sake, or to their gods speaking to the gentiles the veil will remain over their faces they won't see him they won't see the true king and his righteousness come and he said but in Christ when you come to Christ the veil is lifted and you get to see the king in his beauty in Isaiah's words and you'll see him and as John said as he is and There will be a reflection, and we will begin to be transformed into the image of His dear Son, and into His glory, because we see. Now this language Jesus uses quite often in His discussion with the Pharisees, does He not? Those who have a great knowledge of the Scriptures, but couldn't see the King coming. They couldn't get it out of their heads that surely Jesus wouldn't be Him. Surely He would be somebody that looked greater was from a greater line of royalty, whatever, and they didn't want to hear any of the arguments about the prophecies. They just wouldn't see. But to those who are in Christ today, they'll see the king in his beauty. Wow. Moreover, in chapter 26, verses 12 and 13, Isaiah says that the Lord will give them peace. For they say, "...masters beside you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead. They will not live. They are decreased. They will not rise." But now look at verse 19. "...under this king your dead shall live, together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust." For your dew is like the dew of herbs. In other words, that dew of death, just like life is a vapor and passes. He's saying here, the death of those who are in the graves will be like a vapor. It too soon shall pass, and the earth shall cast out its dead. There will be a resurrection of the dead under this king. And the Lord reveals that this son is going to be the one to destroy this covering of death indeed that which they made a covenant with check out chapter 28 verse 15 they made a covenant with death because you've said we've made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we are in agreement when the overflowing scourge passes through it will not come to us For we've made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. The Lord said, it will not stand. In verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled. How are you going to do this, Lord? Here's the second mystery that he's going to uncover. How are you going to swallow up death? How is this king going to do this? Well, we see in verse 16 the announcement of a groundbreaking ceremony. A groundbreaking ceremony. Therefore, because of your covenant of death, which I will not allow to stand, thus says the Lord God, Behold. That is, take hold of this. Grasp this with your eyes. Grasp this with your understanding. Take this inside of your heart. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. A tried stone a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. You see, when someone goes to build a building, they start with a cornerstone. It's inspected. It's the stone upon which the weight of the corner of the building will stand, and if the corner stands, the rest of the building will stand. If the corner is in place, the rest of the building will be plumbed. It will be square. It will be rightly built. And so inspectors harshly scour over the stone that's being put forth as the cornerstone. We see in Daniel chapter 2 and verses 44 and 45 that this stone is a stone, Daniel prophesies, that is not cut out of a mountain made with human hands. God himself will cut out this stone. And he says that it is precious. It's tried. And this is where the idea of the Jews rejecting the cornerstone comes in. The Jews looked at the cornerstone when he came, and they said, you can't rest anything on him. There's a crack in this foundation. This isn't the king we were expecting. He isn't going to be able to uphold God's beautiful uh, temple that we're waiting on or the tabernacle of God, it surely cannot be built upon him. But do you remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, "Some say they said, some say Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets, maybe even Isaiah, I'll bet some were suggesting. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build My church. The fact that I am the Son of God is the precious cornerstone that will not be rejected by God, and it must not be rejected by you. You must build upon Me. And so in that great Sermon on the Mount, when He closes that sermon, and He says, To the people, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is like who? A wise man who built his house upon a rock. This indeed is that rock, the rock about whom Peter spoke when he said, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men. They said, no, not a fitting cornerstone for the kingdom of God. But he said, chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians, 1 uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, You are the temple of God. The cornerstone's been laid, and no other cornerstone is there. And be careful how you build on the cornerstone. In his letter to the Corinthians... You're the temple that was being spoken of here. and So this is revealed as a second great uncovering at this feast. He goes on to talk about those who are at the feast. Those who come, chapter 27, verse 5, will take hold of His strength and make peace with Him. In 27, verse 6, they will take root, blossom, and bud, and fill the face of the whole world with fruit. In 32.15, the Spirit will be poured out from on high, and that's how we're going to do this. How will the world be filled with fruit if it's not the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, which is what? Love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Which is what Paul preached to Felix about the righteousness of God, the judgment to come and self-control in response to the gospel, bringing yourself under submission to the God of heaven. And he trembled. He trembled at the saying, Surely the gospel makes us unnerved, does it not? It's driven whole nations of men toward God, and the gospel message has driven whole nations of men into madness. And that is because of the truth of it. It's because of the truth of it. Only the truth can unnerve us. Only the truth can distress us when we are in competition with God. And so you have a choice. Reject the cornerstone and reject the building of God, which is rejecting God himself. Or submit to the king who's announced in the 8th century B.C. here as Jesus Christ and build your house upon this rock. He warns the world in twenty-eight, twenty-two: Do not be mockers. Do not be mockers, lest their bonds be made stronger. What bonds? The bonds of sin, the bonds of slavery to sin, will be made stronger if you mock at this preaching. Inasmuch as these people, Isaiah says, uh, for God, draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips... Yet their heart, hearts are far removed from me. This is from chapter 29, 13. And their fear of me is taught by the commandment of men. So Jesus quoted this when he said about the Jews in his day that rejected him. They honor me with their lips. I hear them with their mouth, but their hearts are removed far from me. They do not believe that I am the cornerstone of their life. They do not believe this. And so he said, instead they've replaced these teachings with the teachings of men. It's hard to hear the gospel message, even for us who believe. Certain parts of it, surely, still unnervous, as we are chastened into conformity with the will of God. But the king, in chapter 30 and verse 15, Speaks comfort to his people. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. Listen to this. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. A quiet confidence shall be your strength. If you return to God, if you repent, that is to turn around 180 degrees, that's what that word means, to repent. If you return, You'll have a quiet confidence in God. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Now, where's that rest found? Matthew 11, 28. The king will reign in righteousness, and he'll be a hiding place from the wind, chapter 32, 1, a covering from the tempest, and listen to this, and as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land, you song leaders, are your ears perked up? Jesus is a rest in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm that comes from Isaiah's book. When John the Baptist was imprisoned and discouraged and waiting as patiently as he knew how for all of this to unfold as the forerunner of Jesus that Isaiah predicted. He sent his disciples, those whom were listening to his preaching still, go and ask my cousin, Jesus, if he's the one or if we should wait for another. And Jesus, drawing from chapter 35 and verses 4 and 5, said specifically in verse 5 and 6. Go and tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the mute speak. Go tell him that I am he of whom Isaiah spoke. I am the king. His time at, at that point had not come to be resurrected from the dead, but in upcoming lessons, in the next couple of weeks, we'll see from Isaiah in detail just how this veil of death is going to be swallowed up in victory. We'll take a closer look at this servant king, the one whom God says is not only his son, not only a king, but my servant who sent forth to fulfill his purpose and his will. But today we saw an invitation sent to all men to come to the feast of the Lord where His Son is honored, death is destroyed, the resurrection is predicted, Satan would be defeated, we didn't touch on that, I skipped over that, and a foundation stone is laid upon which all men can build their house. And so I ask you, as an invitation from God Will you feast with the king, or will you famine with the devil? Jesus said in Luke 22, 27-30, For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Come to the feast of the Lord, turn to him, and you'll never be put to shame. Let's stand and sing this song.